This episode is brought to you by the Jewelry Institute of America. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving in our new location, conveniently located in Houston, Texas. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your host, Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. Yes, we're back. We're back. We're reunited. It feels so good. Somehow, I caught COVID. And, uh, you know, it's a funny virus. It waits about a week before it jumps on your back. And that's good for the spreader. It gives them time to make a getaway. If I had known for sure who got me sick, they'd have uh, something coming to them. As it is, I'll just have to regroup and get going again. Into every life, some rain must fall. And every rose has its thorns, and all squares are rectangles, but not every rectangles are squares. So, uh, in my time off from the show, I've been working on new ideas and laying groundwork for a new project. It's been a busy time, and I think you will like what's coming up. The show has a new sponsor. I've just been too ill to make an ad for him. So, uh, J. Martin Bitten Spurs, uh, you'll find him on Instagram. Get in touch with him for all of your custom buckle needs. If you saw the buckle I engraved recently, it came from J. Martin Bitten Spurs. It was made to my specifications, and he is standing by to make one for you. This is a big deal for engravers like me who want to engrave buckles but don't necessarily have the space, tools, or know-how to make their own. I've already got another one ordered. Thanks, Juan. Up the road in Oklahoma, I attended the TCAA sale and show at the National Cowboy Museum. Folks, there was so much talent shown up there, it was astounding. The museum itself is worth a visit, but to see the handmade Western arts treated with the reverence usually reserved for so-called, air quotes, fine art, well, you should have been there. That organization really is top-notch. They do it right, and I was glad to be there. I didn't get the interviews that I had wanted to get from it, so I will have to scramble now to uh, get the rest of the story for you so I can tell you how it ends. There's nothing much happening around here, just working through some backlogs, dreaming up some new projects that I'd like to make someday. This week I'm expecting a visit from a friend from the Great White North, Miss Kelly McRae. She's coming down to Fort Worth to accept an award, and hopefully we can get together and work out some plans for future shows. The uh, t-shirt contest deadline has been moved back to October 31st. I've just been too busy and sick to Stay on top of it and keep reminding you all. So Halloween is the deadline. If you've got a good idea for a hand engraving podcast t-shirt design, enter the contest. This will be the official t-shirt design for the show. The winner will be judged by you, the listeners, and the winner will receive one square inch of engraving by me. And that may not sound like much, but you may not know how much I charge per square inch. So if you've got an idea but can't make a perfect press-ready image, Don't worry about it. Everything will have to be finessed before it's ready to be used. So just send in what you've got. Good luck. Again, that deadline is October the 31st. Today's show 
is on a theme I've been asked to do since episode one. And even though I think as the show goes on, you'll learn everything there is to know about me, this show is all about me. My good friend Brian Nichols really stepped up and delivered a well-thought-out interview that definitely leans more to the personal than it does to the technical parts of hand engraving. It was sure easier to be the one answering the questions than to be the one asking. I think you all hear a much more relaxed version of me, which is, of course, the real way that I speak. My wife calls this version you're hearing right now my telephone voice. And she is, of course, right about that. And I am aware that I am speaking to people all over the world and so try to be as coherent as possible. Anyways, we get into some silly stuff. Brian asked me some questions that I don't have any good answer to. I could go in and edit clever answers, but I think it's okay just to keep it honest. For better or worse, you will hear an honest reporting of what I am and what I have been. I certainly hope that you enjoy it. I loved having the chance to speak to my old friend again, and I thank Brian for having the guts to do it. So, now, let's tune in, turn on, and drop out in this topsy-turvy world where the host is hosted. Ghosts get ghosted and toast. Well, it gets a little burned on the edges. A dimension beyond sight and sound. It's stranger than fiction. My friends, here's the show. All right. Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. I'm your substitute host, Brian Nichols. I'm not a master engraver. So let's start off with this, Wade. For everyone that's listening, this is going to be a very biased conversation. As I've known Wade for over 20 years. It's kind of funny to just kind of say that, Wade, that we've known each other for 20 years and sound like old men. I continue to be enamored by people that are creative and do what they love and do it well. And I think, uh, Wade, you're absolutely the, the epitome of that. And so I've heard, you know, obviously I've known you for a long time, I've listened to your podcast, and I thought it'd be kind of cool if we switched seats for a minute and let's interview Wade instead of Wade interviewing someone else. So again, a little preemptive warning. You're not going to learn anything about engraving in this talk. This will be this is biographical. It'll just be about Wade, and hopefully that you'll learn a little bit more about the artist and his art. And uh, with that, I want to introduce to you the man, the myth, the legend, and master engraver, Wade Oliver Wilson. Well, hey Brian, thanks for having me on my show today. <laughs> yeah, th Wade, thanks for thanks for coming on your show. Really I'm appreciate real you real happy to be here talking to you. Couldn't be more proud to have you interviewing me. We've, like you said, we've known each other a long time. We've been, oh, motorcycle buddies, and we've been triathlon buddies, and we probably I don't remember if we ever had any beers together, but we've probably done that at some point. So yeah, I feel like uh, we, we've definitely known each other and crossed paths with each other, and then. A lot of, you're right, motorcycles, triathlons, sat down and grilled together, so, yeah. I can't think of anybody I'd rather have interview me. I feel right at home speaking to you, so. Like awesome. you said, it's your show, so you just tell, you ask me what you want, and I'll give you the best answer I can find. That'll work, that'll work. Well, Wade, we're going to start with, how'd you get your start? No, I'm just kidding. I know, I know in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but I do want to kind of go back to the beginning, and let's let's start off with little Wade, Growing up in Mansfield, correct? That's right. Mansfield, Texas, home of the Fighting Tigers. 
And so little Wade is laying in the grass, looking up at the blue sky above, clouds floating by. What was it that Wade wanted to do when he was a little kid? The one and only thing I ever wanted to do with my life was I wanted to be a naval aviator. And that was even before Top Gun came out. My father had been in the Navy, and my friend's dad had been in the Navy, and he took us all over to different bases, and we always went to air shows. And the only thing I wanted to do with my life was fly airplanes. And somewhere around, I guess right around high school age, I found out that you weren't allowed to be colorblind and be in the... Actually, (laughs) I had two strikes against me. You can't sleepwalk, which I do, and you can't be colorblind and be in the Navy or be, I don't know if you can be in the Navy colorblind, but you can't be a pilot in the Navy anyway. Right. So that was crushing. And at the same time in the nineties, you know, everything in media and, and television was always pushing towards sports. And so I'm sure I'm not different than anybody else that grew up during that time. It was like, well, I guess I'm going to go be a professional athlete you know, just never, like everybody else does. Right. right? <laughs> never mind the fact that I didn't have any natural aptitude for it or the coaching or the time to d- devote to it. So that that didn't last very long. And then so real quick, yeah. let, let me press on that a little bit. So did you did you play any sports in elementary school or middle school or was this you, you just started to pursue you get 90s time frame? Yeah, so I've I've played pretty much every sport there is. I just I I've always loved competing and I've always loved moving and you know, I've t- tennis and football and track and baseball and hockey and swimming and y- you name it, I've tried it. And uh, you know, like I said, it just I'm not particularly athletic. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I I guess I didn't push the issue hard enough to have anybody actually say to me, "Hey, hey man, actually you better look into doing something else. <laughs> you're, you're not set for... So how far did you get within your, I would say, your athletic career? Did you play in high school? Did you did you play either JV or varsity? Or? No, no. The, see, that's the, even, that's the even the worst part, is that I wasn't even good enough for that. So I don't know what I was thinking. I just, I just really didn't want to have a desk job or anything, and I wasn't real sure where I was headed. And I'm st- well, I do know where I'm headed now, as long as everything stays the way it's, it's going to be. <laughs> So, but well, that's what, I mean, so, for most of my life, I had no idea where I was going. That's for certain. So in high school, did you, did you have any creative outlets that you kind of latched onto or was it still just hoping for that high school, either football or swimming or <laughs> what? I wanted to play, sport, I yeah. wanted to play baseball is what I wanted to play, but I was awful at it. Apparently, you know, what did you play when you did play though? Well, wherever the worst player plays right field, right? <laughs> right field. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't by accident that I was out there. So artistically, I always drew, and my mother and father are very artistic, but they that wasn't the life that they lived. They they were they're both very artistic people and, and they're very creative. And I don't feel like they ever really got to really expand on that. They've always had to work very hard to, you know, I had two other sisters. And my parents had to work very hard to keep everybody in shoes and fed and everything. And and uh, even as a kid, I, I recognized that they were my parents were good artists, and and it always interested me. And so that's probably 
how I got started with all that. But as far as, you know, when you're in high school, being an artist generally means you've got a sketch pad and some pencils. Or at least your book covers are well decorated. All my book covers had, you know, Smith's lyrics on them and that, that invisible cube thing and that cool, <laughs> the cool S that everybody draws. The, the I, CS, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I wasn't anything special at art either, but it is something that I've always worked at. Even I was thinking the other day, even in fourth grade, I was already trying to sell artwork to my fellow students. So it's, it's, what, what were you doing pictures of? Well, I'm trying to pawn off. <laughs> well, I like I told you, I was, I was crazy about airplanes. And so I draw an airplane and say, hey, I'll write your name down on right below the cockpit on this airplane as being the as being the pilot. And pilot, yeah. people were like, "Yeah, I don't need that. Thanks, thanks." <laughs> but thanks for offering. Yeah, I drew so much in school that uh, they had to have a meeting with my parents, and they told me to cut it out. But of course, I never did cut it out, and I never did get much better at school either. So I want to go back to your parents, because that was one of my questions, actually, was around your mother and father and what kind of influence they had. So you said that they were creative. What were their creative outlets? Since you said they were kind of limited, was it doodling around the house or was it that, you know, somebody just happened to keep an oil painting around? And get, well, they I remember I, my mother, she even had her own business at one point called Artisans Network, which was it was kind of a consignment shop for other artists to put their work in her store. And she was very talented as a florist. And so she would also, you know, keep the doors of the store open with doing flower arrangements or balloon arrangements, or, you know, down here in Texas at homecoming time, she would make mums. But I remember as a kid, there were, there were paintings in the house that my mom had done. And so, yeah, that's my mom. And, as far as my dad, his creativity was more about getting things done. For instance, one time in sixth grade, and Franz had been really big on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> which was an Arnold Schwarzenegger imitation sort of thing. And I told my parents I wanted to be one of the guys, Hans or Franz. I don't remember which one. And they, they just figured out how to do it. They made me a little muscle suit, and I, I wore it. And, and that, more than anything else... It, really is what I think of when I think about my parents' creativity is that they, they just kind of knew how to how to get things done with, without maybe spending a whole lot of time or money on it. So I've always liked that. That's awesome. So that all actually is just because it's we're nearing Halloween. I was going to ask you about your favorite Halloween costume as a kid. Was Hans and Franz a Halloween costume? It, it must have been. <laughs> it must have been before school. And I remember... I couldn't find anybody to be the other guy. And so I asked this this other student, I was like, hey, I want you to be the other character. And he did, but he kind of half-assed it. So it, I was kind of on my own on that. But dressing up for Halloween, the, the only one that I, I mean, I really remember the weird plastic masks with the little mm-hmm. eye holes and tongue yeah, slit. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a plastic apron that you would wear. That had a picture, you know, whoever on it. Just super generic, yeah. I remember that, and I remember, I think one of my favorite ones was dressing up like a hobo back when, I guess kids don't dress up like hobos anymore, but we did then. And I remember somebody saying, put coffee grounds on your face, and we we weren't a coffee family, so I I didn't have the slightest (laughs) idea what they're talking about. 
Anyways, but, you know, my little girl is getting to the very end of her Halloweening age, and I was telling her the very last time I went trick-or-treating, I was probably in eighth grade, and uh, I went as a backpacker, and I just wore a backpack and just filled that sucker all the way up with candy because, you know, (laughs) that was the most stamina I ever had as a a trick-or-treater. But uh, I don't know. I never had anything that was really extravagant as far as costumes go. I think it was a different time anyway. Understood, understood. So let me ask, though, now you get back with your backpack full of candy, and this is really the most important question, and that is, what's the first candy that you throw away? Oh, <laughs> you know. Or you're quick to give to someone else, or you know, I'll trade you four of these for one of those. In the 80s, it was a lot weirder. I, well, maybe it's still weird. I just, I don't think the experiences is quite the same for, for today's kids. I would, I didn't really turn my nose up at anything except we had some neighbors who gave out pennies, which is irritating even to the to this day that someone would do that. Ooh. And then another one would give out popcorn balls. And I'm sure that's great. But you have to remember that this was in the 80s, right in the middle of the satanic panic. So if we definitely weren't eating anything that wasn't from a store. And as a matter of fact, I remember the local hospital, you could take your your bag of candy, candy up there, and they would x-ray People were so crazy about all that stuff. Yeah, just terrified that they were going to have razor blades and machine guns inside your candy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's, that's one of the... I remember doing that one time, but they only found two razor blades, so it was cool. <laughs> and they were small, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me take back to high school, because that's that's... I don't know. I, I was enamored with cars and motorcycles as a kid, and then going into high school. High school, your first car. Oh man, the first running car. <laughs> the first running car. Yeah, sure. Did you? So I, that leads to another story. Then yeah, you also had an, a non-running car. We we had a a driveway full of non-running cars. Like I said, I had I've got two sisters, and my older sister had been in a car wreck, and she bought a. Was a 1992 Isuzu Stylus. It's one of the finest cars to ever be made. Ever built. <laughs> and she drove it for a couple of years, and then she decided that she wanted to buy a, a Saturn SC2, the the plastic wonder from yeah, Detroit sure. or wherever they made them. Maybe they made them in Tennessee or something. Anyways, so she let me use that stylus, and so that was my first car that really was you know up to me to take care of, but. Before that, I'd driven whatever my parents had at the time, of course. And my first semi-running vehicle was a old GMC pickup truck. But that was what the first 1962 oh, nice. GMC Stepside. It was a, a real beauty, but not much mechanically. So <laughs> that was my my first, at least my first stick. Stick. It was three on the tree. A 1974 Chevy Stepside. No power windows, no power brakes, no no AC. Yep, those are so, the good times. Mine was a right. mine had been a three on the tree, and somebody put down on the floor, and it was real loosey goosey, <laughs> a little they, rough to get in and out of. <laughs> yeah, they cut a giant hole in the floorboard, and it was just it was a mess. So, anyways, did you start getting into motorcycles or classic cars at that time, or at least I would say a further appreciate or initial appreciation, or well? Like all men, I dreamed, you know, as a youth, I dreamt about having a Harley Davidson and 
driving the Southwest and solving crimes and, you know, beating up people that needed beaten up and that sort of stuff. But never did get my Harley Davidson. And then, you know, fast forward to my adult years, started running with a bunch of people that uh, drove European bikes. And that's where I met you. And that's when I got my first motorcycle. Okay. Okay. That helps. I guess my last thing on cars in high school, the ultra hot sticker. Yeah. Did you have one in your rear window? Uh, no, but I've got <laughs> I've got one right next to my computer right now, and That's and bad. nothing makes me happier than the ultra hot sticker. And uh, for a long time, I thought I had just made it up, but apparently it was a real thing. And uh, I'm not even going to describe what it is. I'll let people go just, out and find out what ultra hot is for themselves. Absolutely. I was going to say, for those that don't know, definitely spend some time to Google it. It was an absolute phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get past high school then and move. we're moving into college. College. So we, we get out of high school. We're not super impressed with that. College happens, correct? Well, for some people, but I didn't even have the... Well, I, I went to junior college, but it... I was going to say, I thought you went to, to JC, right? I did, and I, I went there on an athletic scholarship as an athletic trainer. And I'll tell you how sad my academic career was. Even at a junior college, I felt like I was, I, you know, I guess an early form of imposter syndrome. Like, I don't even belong on a junior college campus. But I went, you know, I went out to Tyler and did that, and then I came back and took some in Fort Worth, where most of the people I went to school with end up. It used to be called TCJC, now it's called something else. But, you know, I didn't know where I was headed, and and I didn't know what to do, and I didn't see any point in continuing with that, so I just went and got in the job market. So. And I think that's that, that makes so that's actually where I was going next was here's here's what I know of your job market and and for those that don't know Wade Wade I'll try to do the best I can <laughs> I know that you've done digital design because I know that you worked for Bell Helicopter doing that that's right I know that you've worked in I mean taken from that some digital drawing digital design just on your own as part of your own artwork and your own design you've got a, a stab at airbrush. You spent some time doing fine line work. You did motorcycle, both for motorcycles and cars, but then also did motorcycle paint at Iron Horse. I know that you've you've done leather tooling. You've done designs on vans. You've what else am I missing here before we even get to the engraving part? Because you've you've got a, a laundry list of skill sets in that artistic creative repertoire. Well, that's all true. From a very young age, my mother would see houses that were for, for sale for or I should say from a very young age for me my mother would see houses that were for sale that the yards needed mowing and then she would call the realtor and I would end up having to go out and mow those yards so from from a young age I enjoy I really enjoyed making money and so I I was working from pretty early on you know just around my neighborhood mainly but later on gosh what all did I do I've been a roofer, which was terrible, and I suggest everybody stay away from that. I'll uh, do it once just because it's terrible work. <laughs> I did it one one Christmas holiday. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> do it just long <laughs> enough to burn your brain out and hurt yourself, and then 
realize I, I barely got paid anything and I, I've, I've <laughs> damaged myself for life. Let's see. I was the world's worst barista at a Starbucks that was attached to <laughs> attached to a Barnes and Noble. And and I just happened to be working there at the time when two of or two or three of the managers were in cahoots stealing money, embezzling money from the store, and they were trying to hang it on us baristas. And Oh, I should say baristas, you know, the coffee maker. Anyways, I, I'm not very sympathetic to how people want their coffee, and so <laughs> I was really not very good at that job. I was going to say, I kind of can't imagine you, oh, would you like two two sugars of cream and you want that... Ex, I don't know, venti, no water, chai, soy. Yeah, that I, I wouldn't. No, you want your coffee hot? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, I wasn't in. I was. I'm a bad employee when it comes down to it. Let's see. I set up fax machines and later learned how to work on fax machines and copier machines. And I did a job. I worked a job for a long time. As a matter of fact, probably the best company I ever worked for. And we put valves oil pipeline valves i put them into boxes and shipped them all around the world Rough. yeah right there near Seven downtown three, three, yeah, yeah. yeah okay so those <laughs> that was a real old school company where they still treated you right and they gave you a, a turkey for thanksgiving and a turkey for christmas and a big bag of pecans and everything it's real real class place and then i went from there to working at them was that family owned by the way it was, was a, yeah okay the original owner had died in the and the owner's wife continued on, and she continued to do it the same way he was doing it back in the 60s and 70s. So it was really great. But there what I mean, you can only put so many valves into boxes while you're, you know, spending the rest of the day staring out the window drawing. And eventually I, I taught myself how to pinstripe, and I went and worked at that motorcycle factory, and that was that was its own thing, and it really polluted my body with paint chemicals for a couple of years doing that. And eventually, like you said, ended up at Bell Helicopter, which was, it was really great. I got to work there at the same time my father, and I worked there the same time you worked there. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But my father was working there at the same time, and I thought that was kind of special. And like when he did his retirement, I got to make all the graphics for his retirement. And that was, that was neat. But a wise man once said, nothing lasts forever, even cold November rain. And he was he was right, and then he jumped right into that uh, wedding cake, whatever it was. So, <laughs> so even while I was working at Bell Helicopter, I had that's when I started designing for uh, engraving, and then ever since then, it's just been engraving for me. And that's where I, I was. This is this is working out great for me because that's where I wanted to go next was what was it? So, I mean, you've dipped your toes into the water of a number of different things. And I, and I feel like you've done them for a long time. You've done airbrush. You, you dabbled for quite some time with leather. You, you did some, again, motorcycle, fine line work. But this one seems to stick. So what is it that really what is more fascinating and or has kept your attention <laughs> well, that's a, the, the most about it. That's a good question. And I don't know if it has more to do with the, with what engraving is or what I have become in my older age, you know, you settle down as you get older. And this is definitely a discipline that requires a lot of patience and a lot of study. However, I will say that it is a natural progression from everything else that I've done. 
I think a lot of leather workers and a lot of pinstripers and a lot of airbrushers have and tattoo artists that not that I was ever a tattoo artist. I just want to include them. A lot of these artists, they learn that the hard part is is learning to work with your hands. And then after that, the hard part is learning to be honest with yourself about the results that you're getting. And I think that's Whenever you're pinstriping, you start off rough and you want to get better and you want to get better and one day you are better and then where do you take it? Well, you probably start looking around for something else to do and pinstriping teaches you line weight. It teaches you how to how to break up a canvas, how to make a design on the fly, how to keep things balanced while, you know... You don't generally draw things out beforehand in in pinstriping. It's a very improvisational art. And I think a lot of those lessons that I learned there translate directly into designing and implementing engraving. Not so much airbrushing, although I I could say I've learned a lot about shading from airbrushing since airbrushing is 100% shading. Leather work, the... What you can do with leather and what you can do with metal art aren't exactly a one-to-one comparison, but they are very similar. So that's probably, matter of fact, that's probably why I like leather work is because it's similar to engraving and design. So, yeah, so that's, so you, you end up in this field, hand engraving, and the price for entry is so high that (laughs) you either get in it and you stick with it or you've you've really laid out a lot of money and and I once I got into it and I could see that it was going to work I I just realized that this is what everything's been leading up to and and this is an art form that I will never get to the end of it because just as soon as you think you're perfect at something you'll find just a fractional way to improve or you'll see another style or you'll see somebody's post on Instagram and you go, Oh, you know, I've never thought of doing it that way. And that'll open you up to a different, you know, a different way of going about it. And so it's, it's, it's not a bottomless pit. It's a, it's an open horizon. It's, it's something that as long as I stay healthy, I will continue to try to improve that. That's fantastic. That in couple of things as you, as you were talking there one line weight and whatnot so i'm not a tattoo artist but i happen to have a few tattoos and that was something that working like talking with tattoo artists talking about line weight and the importance of that and what it does in terms of flow and really interesting and, and i could see that in engraving and the the line weight the balance create motion almost if that makes sense well it sure can yeah. i mean think about that infinity symbol you have on your ankle that turns into doves that turn into butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> Think about how much <laughs> how much motion they get out just those simple lines. So ton. <laughs> <laughs> but you also called out in there the imperfection of it, and I, I I don't know a lot about it, but I know that I've re- I've heard reference from craftsmen and artisans. I think it's called Wabi Sabi. That's the the kind of the the beauty of imperfection. Oh, Are you familiar with that? I don't know about that, but I it's Japanese beauty of like finding beauty in the imperfection. And I'm and I'm curious then if some of engraving and whatnot, because it's while you are working through it, like looking back at your work and saying, Oh, it's imperfect, but it's also has a beauty to it and, and a different understanding. You know, I've 
I've heard that sort of thing, and I don't know that I ascribe to that or subscribe to that, whatever the proper word is there. It's just not for me. And that's probably because I'm working in a system under a microscope that I can make these things look almost perfect under a microscope. And then to your naked eye, they do look perfect. And so if there's any mistakes in my, in my work, those mistakes are usually going to be more related to the layout and less related to the cutting. And if it's, if it's a mistake in the cutting, I feel like I can fix that. And if it's a mistake in the layout, then that's not, that is not something that I would be proud of. That'd be something I, gotcha. I have been embarrassed about. And it's, it's part of the learning you know, it's, this is not easy. It's, it's really not easy. And, uh, you know, the things that I post online are usually when it has gone well. And my idea of what has gone well changes over time. And things that I was very proud of now, I don't want to discuss, you know what I mean? It just, it's an ever evolving level of expertise. So in, so in one of your episodes, you mentioned that for you, you kind of fall out of love with the project or, or the work in, in about two weeks. Is that part of that, that it's like you see something and you're like, yeah, I could have done this better? Or is it just and in, in that you're constantly pressing for perfection? Or is it that you could continue to work and work and work and work and keep reworking? And But at some point, there's also your time is is, is involved with this. And at some point, it's going to cost you, you know, a thousand dollars an hour for the work that you just did, or something like that. Well, I can honestly say everything that I've put out, I liked at the time. However, that's fair. However, I when I said that I fall in love with it, I think that is actually true. I think there's still an excitement about some of the pieces I work on when when I try something new or I do something that I think is pretty clever and. You get done with it, and you put the money in the bank, and you think, oh, you know, that was that was pretty great. I I did a good job. I'm gonna go, you know, eat an ice cream cone or whatever. And then in a couple of weeks, when when you haven't seen that design, for, you know, in those two weeks or three weeks, and you come back to it, and you go, oh, you know, actually, if I was to do this again, I would probably <laughs> change this. And then the more you look at it, you say, golly, you know. Were I to do this again, I would actually change this and this. And then you say, well, actually, this is all wrong. I don't even know why I did this. Did I? Am I, am I responsible for this? Did I design this? <laughs> this is awful. Is this really a Wade, Wade Wilson piece of work? <laughs> but, but I will say that once a few years have passed, I'm able to go back. And even the very first gun that I ever engraved, I can see where I was and I can see what I was thinking and I can appreciate that now. And it doesn't, it doesn't really hurt me personally to look at my old work, even though it's not as good as what I'm doing now. I can, I can sympathize with the man that I was then and what I knew and, you know, were were there time constraints, were there money constraints? Did I, you know, maybe I wasn't, working with the same engraving system I have now, I can, I can understand it. I can cut myself some slack. So, I mean, it's, I would say it's more of a personal accountability thing for me is that I, 
I want to turn out the very best product that I can. But once time has passed, or once you've actually delivered that product, I mean, that's it. <laughs> it's, it's done. done. Yeah. It's done. So you can beat yourself up about it, or you can, you know, is I've I've never done any engraving that saved anybody's life, or was so timely that you know it kept a bomb from going off or anything. So all these things I'm doing are actually, you know, it's when it comes down to it, it's pretty frivolous. So you just have to do the best you can and you and you and you got to be honest with yourself and honest with the customer so i don't i don't know what else to really say about it other than that no that's fair that's i think that that makes sense so i won't go into the project that you're least proud of because <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't want to call call those out but I, I am curious as to what your the project that you hang the highest, at least as of today, because I, I assume that it's kind of almost ever-changing then as you continue to grow, take on new, bigger, more complex projects, as well as just as your experience persists. What is the project as of today that you're most proud of? Well, that's a good question. I've done a, a lot of things in, in my different jobs that I was proud of. You know, my paintwork won a lot of awards. One of the one of the choppers that I painted won the Easy Rider competition over that was held over in Germany one year. That was a big deal. And was that the faux wood? Yeah, yeah, it sure I was. I still remember that one. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I can't find that magazine. I really wanted to post a picture, but I cannot find it. And uh, you know, just telling somebody that you won it over in in Europe is is kind of like saying that you've got a girlfriend who lives in Canada. So. <laughs> It seems a little bogus, but it's 100% real. You know, even back when I was painting all the time, people would call and say, oh, you know, I took the car or the motorcycle into this contest and we won. And it never even really registered with me because I always, I won so many things, I just expected it. Or when people would say, oh, you know, so we showed so-and-so his motorcycle and he, and he burst into tears about it. And I was like, yeah, of course he did. It's great. You know, and the same thing happens now with engraving, too. And I, I don't know. I just I it's like being a really good cook. You know that the the food you're putting out is good. So when you hear people like it, it's not it's not that big a surprise, really. But sometimes a job will come through and it, either, you know, it's difficult to achieve it was difficult to design, it's difficult to engrave because the metal was hard or or whatever. And sometimes those still come through and and they and they perk you up a little bit when you when you complete them, you feel like you've accomplished something. But as far as an one job that I would say I was the most proud of is one year for Christmas I made a pendant for my little girl for Christmas, and uh, she really likes King Tut. And so I found his his cartouche, like the, what they would have engraved on his on his sure on his tomb and all that. And I cut it for her, and I wouldn't I didn't think she would like it the way she likes it, but she wears it all the time, and she's real proud of it. And I don't know something about making a difference to my my own little girl, who you know two years from now will be a teenager and. She won't care one way or the other about me. I don't, it makes me feel good to see her wear that, I guess. I, you know, I, I can, I don't know, I can impress people enough to get on magazines or whatever, but I live with this critic, and uh, if I've made something good enough for her, then that, that makes me pretty happy. That'll I think. work. 
So. That's fantastic. <laughs> so that's that's a good segue. I was going to ask if if you're okay with getting into it. Your daughter, creativity is she, is this running? Does she also show the same creative propensity that you have? And your wife is also actually fairly creative, and she's quite the the, the chef as well. Yeah, it's true. I've got the 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 weight to to prove it. You know, it's hard to say what my little girl is going to do. She stays so busy that she doesn't have a, a great deal of time to to fool around with art. And, you know, she's at the point where school is getting down to business. You know, it's not, it's not finger painting all day long. Yeah, it's serious. <laughs> so I don't know what she'll do, but I'm here for it. I've got all the supplies if she ever wants to try anything. And, of course, Amanda is the, the driving engine of the household. So, I mean... She, she is very creative, but she she also gets tired. You know, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't have endless time to play around. I think she does really enjoy it when she does get a chance, though. So, yeah, they're. I think they both are creative people. I just I don't think it's number one in their life like it is for me. Well, that's fair. That's fair. And maybe it'll be kind of like you. You know, it, it comes out a little later in terms of the the desire there. You never can tell. Technology changes every day. So you've you've been through the the whirlwind of multiple multiple jobs, and now you're an engraver. But no, you couldn't just stop the engraving. You're a master engraver, and so that's a recent one for you. But you didn't just stop there. You also now have a podcast. That how many episodes is ten? Well, ten there's already? there's ten online, but there were some other podcasts that I posted and, and ended up taking down because they weren't getting very good listenership. Ah, okay. But we're going into, you're also doing some classes and you're going to do a video, some YouTube engraving as well. Is that correct? Man, yeah, there's all sorts of good stuff coming up. Of course, talking about, well, if, you're, if you've ever heard the Hand Engraving podcast, the one you're listening to right now. The world's greatest. The world's greatest podcast dedicated podcast. to the art and artists of hand engraving. Anyways, yeah, so I had a... I had an idea to make a podcast because there wasn't anything else like it out there. And I wanted to start really small because I didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing. And once I did figure out how to record it, I didn't really know how to get it out to people. And people have been wonderful. They've been really lovely and supportive. And the show is steadily getting bigger. We're, this is the first episode of the second season. I decided to break it up into the seasons just like the year. That way I put out a certain number of episodes and then I can have a special at the end and then take a little break, come back refreshed with more shows. I'm really looking forward to getting into the second season. I think it's going to be the best one yet out of the two. I am coming out with a video series. It's called Draw, D-R-A-W, with two exclamation points. It will be a subscription-only show, and I will be going over all aspects of drawing for scroll work and engraving. And what else? I guess that's it. it <laughs> it's a lot more than it sounds like. It's, a, it's an actual... It's a whole lot of work, and the video part is at the same level as when I started the podcast. I don't really know what I'm doing yet, and <laughs> I'm just going to do the best I can. So your podcast, though, I'll, I'll go ahead and call out, has progressed quite a bit from episode one 
to your last episode, which the special episode. Oh, did you listen to that? It's relationship. It was phenomenal. Really? So I, it, so again, I'm not an engraver, but I, artistically, look, I doodle, I, I do different things with watercolor, I do things with, you know, oils. I, the, the, it made sense, right? Of the rhythm, 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 <laughs> melody, <laughs> melody, melody. <laughs> but it was, but it made sense of, of the consistency and, and a couple of things that you mentioned there. Like eventually after doing it, you will learn to identify what is good and you can tell the difference between good design and bad design. And, and again, it just comes with time and practice and hours in chair, if you will. But I wanted to ask about that podcast because you're relatively new to music, right? I mean, you've... Yeah, I barely know what I'm talking about. You, but, you've listened to a lot of music. <laughs> but I've, li- I've listened to a lot of music and I only tried to talk about the parts that I have an understanding of. And I thought, well, I can see the connection here. So surely I can bring this connection across to people and let them see what I'm seeing. But you know that uh, as good as I thought that episode was, it's, it's really gotten very bad <laughs> listenership. It, it, it really tanked. Well, so if anybody out there is listening and <laughs> may, this may be one that also tanks, but if, <laughs> if it goes well, take a listen to that one. Because to me, even I, I feel like there's a, there's a great relationship between the two. And to me, it was just a, it, 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 it worked out perfectly. And, and I do know a little bit about music. I haven't been a hack guitar player, bass player and whatnot back in the day. It did make sense. And what you were saying around engraving, again, while I obviously don't know, can't do anything close to what you're doing, it makes sense conceptually of the relationship between the two. Well, I'm glad you liked it and got something out of it. And as a matter of fact, the people who did listen to it have generally said it was very they enjoyed what they heard. So I'm going to continue to do specials, whether people listen to them or not. And the specials are going to start tying into the video to draw. And so one of the biggest problems I have making this podcast is that engraving is a visual art form. And to speak about a visual art form is kind of like having an art book with no pictures in it. (laughs) And I want to be able to show you what I'm talking about and so right from the beginning, I knew that eventually there would have to be a video portion of this. It's just a matter of building up to it. And I think we're just about there. And I think it's really going to be good. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. The biographical part for sure makes sense. I think that the, the, from the technical side, yeah, the, you can only you know exponentially get better by showing along with the with the the discussion that goes with it. And then I think to, to parse to that, the the relationship in other areas just, I mean, to me, makes perfect sense. So I'm, I'm excited just to learn more about it. Well, stay tuned. It won't be much longer. We'll be. <laughs> You're almost there. We'll right? be there. Yeah. Won't be long. So let's get into your music. So <laughs> you are an amateur guitar player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm a student. I'm a student of guitar. I'll say that. You're, you're continuing to expand the, the Wade Wilson tool belt, if you will, of different things that you can do and cre- create <laughs> with. What, what song is currently downloaded on your phone that you'd be most embarrassed if it started to play? Oh, gosh. I, I listen to so much ridiculous stuff, you wouldn't believe it. But I don't know what to tell you because I quit putting music on my phone because I use my phone for GarageBand and I want to keep a lot of the data open. <laughs> Golly. I 
I've been playing a lot of old country music lately, and a lot of it's pretty silly, and and when it comes down to it, it's not, not particularly good. I mean, it's fun to when, pl- it's fun to play and sing along to, but mm, I don't know. When you say old country, we're going back Bob Wills, or we're going oh, back no, just like thirties and forties stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. So I don't. I'm sure there's something embarrassing that I'm listening to, but I just can't think of what it would be right now. Sorry about that. That's not a good answer, but that's the truth. So I only I have a couple things that you didn't know about Wade, and mentioned them earlier. He has he's done tri- sprint and Olympic distance triathlon, hockey of all things. He's quite the swing dancer. Oh yeah, what I forgot other about dancing. Skills. Yeah. Yeah. What other unique skills do you have that again, just to, to broaden the So what else do I do? You know, being an engraver you have to learn to be a photographer and I'm starting to fool with that a little bit more. As in not just using iPhone for photo but actual Yeah, like camera and lighting. Learning and- what the buttons do and stuff. Learn, learning about f-stops and aperture and <laughs> yeah f-stop fitzgerald and all the different lenses and what they do and yeah it's a whole thing and you know an awful lot of my time is is just being a dad and driving little girls to ballet practice and stuff and and i'm doing a good job at that and yeah just kind of just kind of living the suburban dad life mainly sounds good all right wade this is everybody's favorite part of the show, or it will be. Five okay. questions with Wade Wilson. Okay, lay it on me. Would you rather be forced to listen to the same ten songs on repeat for the rest of your life, or forced to watch the same five movies on repeat for the rest of your life? Which one would I rather do? Yes. Watch the movies, for sure. There's do you some, know which movies those would be? Oh. I get to, <laughs> I get to choose them? I yeah, get to of choose. Course. Okay, Bloodsport, Last Dragon, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Gosh, I don't know. That new Elvis movie is awfully good. I saw. It was pretty good. I saw the new David Bowie documentary last night. It was awfully good. But maybe, maybe more realistic would be a Ferris Bueller's. And uh, hold on, an airplane's going over. You were about to say, "Uh-oh, airplane!" Like you were going. To no, airplane. Like- <laughs> airplane. Airplane doesn't hold up at all. It's. It's not worth a darn. But, yeah, I think there's enough there. That'll work. That'll work. All right. If you were stranded on an island, what three things, not people, would you have with you? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, could I have a, a genie in a bottle so I could get more things? Now, if I was stranded on an island and, and there was no hope for me getting off of that island... Oh, gosh, I don't even know what I'd want. That's not a very interesting answer, but, I mean, do you want food that's gonna, that's perishable <laughs> or, or consumable? Or would you rather have a... The one thing I'd want on an island is a raft and two oars, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's your three, right? Dude, <laughs> number three, would you rather eat a food that you hate once a week or never have your favorite food again? Never have my favorite food again. Eating is, is such an enjoyable thing. I... I could definitely skip one thing rather than have something that I dislike. Fair enough. I'm I'm agree and my my waistline also shows that eating <laughs> is an enjoyable thing. Yeah. I mean I 
I don't even like to deal with food that's at the wrong temperature, much less taste bad. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, definitely the, what I said. So, all right, what superpower do you think is the most useless? Oh, that's a good question. I've always wondered how deep X-ray vision goes, and also once you get beyond being in junior high or high school, do you, as a male, do you still need? Need that, or or is it be better to just develop social skills, which you know achieves the same end? So, you still remember the uh, the old X-ray specs yeah, ad at the back of the comic for books. sure. That's what I was wondering because in the even in that ad, it shows that it goes through to the bones. Is that hot? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> That's not what I want. So yeah, definitely not that. And. I would, of course, love to fly, so that's not useless. So, And I also know, not that I'm a, a big comic books aficionado, but I know that there's some super lame comic book characters out there. I mean, take any of the any of the Batman villains from the old 60s Batman TV, like Clock King or Egghead or anything. Whatever power those guys have, that's the that's the most ridiculous ones. <laughs> I was thinking back when I was was thinking through these questions. I also thought that the Wonder Twin powers activate. Like one was you know, had to be something ice and or water based, and the other one was like an animal. I don't know. It yeah. just never seemed to. It's like, well, that seems stupid. So. Well, I don't know. I I remember enjoying it, but is it, <laughs> is it the most practical one to have? No, but I mean, it's better than. You know, I can't even tell you what Clock King's power is. Always knowing what time it is, I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> I can tell you exactly what time it is in every country. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> All right, last one. Which three guests would you rather have dinner with if you could select? They could be present, as in alive, or past, as in passed away. What three would you choose to have dinner with? People that have been on the show only or people that I just... No, people in throughout history you oh, may have never oh, met. Very good. This is, this is a broad, broad, broad question. Man, that is an excellent question. Let me see. Out of all history... Who's... I feel like of all the, the guests that you've had on your show, you are going to meet with them at some point or another. Right. I would, just... I would like to have Willie Nelson on just because if the... If things turn sour, I, I think he could probably find some way to lighten the mood or elevate the mood, as it were. <laughs> as it, as uh, it were, some such. <laughs> you know, and being a fellow Texan, I feel like, you know, we'd have some sort of connection there. Sure. Oh, goodness. I just read today that John Cena has done like 450 more of these Make-A-Wish things than any other athlete or superstar has done he's done like 650 and the closest person to him has only done 200 something wow and not that it would be an honor for him to come and eat with me but i would like to i wouldn't mind sitting down with him and and tell him what i thought about that and how sure i really think that's great and maybe it's just because it's on my mind but i wouldn't object to sitting down with him oh gosh there's you know who i'd really like to have dinner with my friend Brian Nichols. Oh, sir. He could be I there. Appreciate that. And then if the other guys didn't enjoy talking to me, at least I'd have someone to speak to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, greatly appreciated. Well, Wade, that's all I've run out of questions. But look, I greatly appreciate I, I, I hope that everyone else appreciates just kind of kind of 
peeking back behind the curtain, if you will, and meeting Wade in a little different light. And I'm sure at some point or another, you'll meet him in person. He's just as good in person as he is on the podcast. What you see is what you get, so to speak, that he's a straight shooter and again, solid guy and always seems to bring a little something to the table. So greatly appreciate you sitting down and joining your own show. Well, thanks for having me on my show. I thought you actually did a great job, and you can come back on anytime you want. I think you put together a good show, and I think it'll be interesting to listen to. Well, I hope everybody enjoys it as well. All right. Well, get off my phone. All right, sir. I'm going to go eat dinner now. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. <laughs> thanks, Wade. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a lot of fun for me. Thank you to my old friend Brian for being brave. He's a true friend of me and has been for a long time. I've always looked up to him as a decent and honorable person. The show is back. I am mostly back. There's a bunch of great stuff on the horizon. Let's all travel there together. What do you say? Thanks for listening. As always, the show music is by the lovely and talented Marius Mellaby, a.k.a. Engraver Hand. I'm going to go get back in bed, and I will see you next time.